thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really, I've been looking forward to talking to you about your book and partially because I am really nosy and I always want to know kind of like the, the whys and the wheres and the hows, but also because I know personally there, there's ways that I remember the people that I love and it takes me a moment to, to think about actually like my grandmother, she wasn't nine years old running down, you know, a stream playing with her friends and thinking, no, I can't do that because I'm going to have this granddaughter one day. And I don't. So she was out there living her life in ways that had nothing to do with me. And I think it's such a powerful thing to be able to sit with and say, this person was a person before they knew me. And some of the things that they did had nothing to do with me. So I want to say first, thank you so much for joining us and for the podcast today. Thank you. It's it's really a pleasure and an honor to be with you. Oh, thank and you. The author of Remembered. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. So can you tell us a little bit about your decision to, to write? And it's it was, I think, one thing to, to find your grandfather's diaries. And that I would imagine would be a really powerful moment. But from finding them to deciding that, yes, I'm going to write about them and writing and publishing them. Can you talk, take us on that journey a little bit, please? Yeah, it was a long journey. When I found the diaries only after my mother's death and they were sort of hidden high up on a bookshelf behind books or stashed there, I don't know. And since I had spent really the happiest and the most stable years of my childhood. I had a childhood moving around a whole lot, you know, from being born in Berlin in 1942, being uh, fleeing the city in 1945 with my mother and grandmother, and then being moved around to different relatives in the post-war years and so on. So until I came to my grandfather, who gave me not only stability and security, but so much joy in my life. So I was very eager to read when I saw these were his diaries. And I saw that they were written in the form of letters to us because we had left, we had fled by then, but he had uh, stayed behind because he was a doctor and he was desperately needed in the city. That was not, you know, I sort of keep thinking of uh, Ukraine. You know, we read all books in a way in the current context, and seeing me and this crowded railroad station platform fleeing Berlin with my mother and shouts and screams all around, you saw the same scenes in from Ukraine. And also a city 90% destroyed, you know, just ruins. He didn't recognize the once familiar landscape where he lived. And so I began to read immediately and I thought, I need to tell the story of this. It's a day-by-day account, first under the bombing and then under Soviet occupation. Again, the Red Army coming in and being brutal and all that, you know, again, sort of resonates with today. And so I was firmly resolved to do that. But then, and I could read that section, what got me to, would you like me to read that already or... Mm -hmm. Right after you finish with with your answer, because it's fascinating. Oh, but okay. yeah, then if you could read it, that would be wonderful. So what I did was take them home with me and thought I would, you know, transcribe them or sort of make them a kind of historical document and uh, also a tribute to my grandfather. Yeah. But then when I discovered 
that he, and that's the passage I was going to read, where had been a member of the Nazi party. I did exactly what my mother had done. I hid the diaries again. Mm. And I told no one about it, you know. Um, I had always, I think that's probably typical of people of my generation, had always been ashamed of being German just because of, you know, the horrendous things that were done in our country's name. But I had never sort of, it has never been related to me personally in a way. You know, this suddenly hit home. This is not just German history and, you know, Nazi atrocities. This is actually my grandfather. Uh, So it hit me on a whole new level. Because ironically, when I was a grad student at Columbia University, and a student who really wanted to start a conversation with me said, his opening line was, so you've made soap out of my end. Oh, my goodness. I was so shocked i burst into tears and ran away but even then i did not think about my person i just thought how terribly shocking how can he say something like that you know but it still did not make me reevaluate or think about the nazi period my field had been modern drama and that's what i was studying at columbia and then uh, for the phd and this was in part helped by, in Germany, after immediately after the war, there was a complete silence about the Nazi period. It was mm. incredible. It was not, nothing was ever mentioned. And, you know, for example, I went to the gymnasium, which is, you know, the high school. Okay. I got a fantastic education. I could write essays in Latin, in French, and in English. Research papers. I mean, really an outstanding education. But believe it or not, our history classes ended with the end of World War I. As wow. if nothing had happened. We didn't have, of course, the German flag. We never sang the German anthem. When there was a festive occasion, it was always Beethoven's Ninth, you know, the, the ode to joy at the end, where all men become brothers. And nothing was ever mentioned. That changed dramatically after I had left Germany to come to the United States, when suddenly, I think in part because of the young people and the pressure from the young people who wanted their parents to confront the horrors of the past, and they really then, from then on, have, I think, done quite an amazing job in facing their country's past and facing up to it. I always like to think of the example of what they call the Stolpersteine, which means the stumbling stones. Mm -hmm. And I think that would be a great thing here in the States too. In front of every house from where a Jewish family had taken, they put a little bronze stone that stuck out of the pavement with the date when the family had been taken and their name and where they had been taken to. And they want people to stumble over those in their daily life, you know, just for a moment to think, oh my God, here's another house that this happened. And so they're putting these, Berlin is full of them, and most big cities are, but they're trying to put them there. It's still an ongoing process. They never had, as they have here, all the statutes to Hitler or the Nazi grants. That never existed in the first place. Mm. 
but they have really gone out of their way to put mementos. And in places where Hitler was, they make a point of not doing anything that might attract neo-Nazis, right? Any mm. glory sort of things, but really only facts and statistics about all the people that were murdered or, you know, died in some concentration camp and so on. So mm. I think they've done a good job with that. But that was after I had left. So I grew up not, and my friends, none of us ever questioned that really. You know, although we were all in a way affected almost, I didn't have a father. My father was killed in the war and I wasn't alone. Most of my friends didn't have fathers because they were killed in the war. So in a way, the presence was there. But as kids, we just accepted that's how it was. I think so many of us do that. So many of us don't necessarily even, it doesn't kind of cross your mind. You're so you're in the present. And so what happened before just seems like it. It's so far away, but actually is living all around us. Right. I mean, that is true of African-American history as well. It is. So could we have a bit of a reading, please? Okay. I want to read the moment when I found out that, that he had been a member of the Nazi party. So I took the diaries, carefully wrapped them up, and took them home from Vienna to Indiana, where I live, South Bend. And back home, I set to work immediately. I soon noticed an abbreviation that appeared more and more frequently. It was two letters, P and G. I recalled dimly that this might, no, must mean parteigenosse, party members. Surely not my grandfather. And then I made my second discovery. Api had been a PG, a member of the Nazi party, the National Socialist German Workers' Party. I had not known this. It had never been mentioned in my family. I sat there with a pounding heart, saying to myself over and over in the crudest and most shocking terms, Oh my God, Api was a Nazi. I could not go on. In tears, I could not talk about it, not even with my husband, Mike, or my son, Benedict. I hid the green notebooks again, burying them deep in the bottom drawer of my desk. I had wanted to tell the story of their diaries for their historical value and also as a tribute to my api who loved me and played with me, who taught me Latin and showed me how to build a kite. I had not foreseen that this supposed tribute to him would lead to a painful re-evaluation of my family, my life, and my nationality. Wow. So I kept that silence for two years. And then I think as probably has happened to all of us at some point or another. I had not planned it at all. We were sitting in a coffee house and suddenly out of the blue, I burst into tears and told my husband the story that, you know, my grandfather had been a member of the Nazi party. And to my great surprise, instead of being shocked and so on, he said, it's even more important now that you write about this and show you know, people caught in totalitarian regimes and what that life is like for ordinary citizens and so on. And he kept pushing me, but I still couldn't do it. I mean, it still took me months and months. The one thing I did do, begin to do, I began to read about the Nazi period. Mm. 
and my bookshelves are behind me. But oh yeah, this is sorry, this is an audio thing <laughs> because suddenly my bookshelves filled with books on Nazi history and you know all the big names Evans and Kershaw and you know all the big writers. I I read all their books and. It was a way of edging closer to writing myself. And one thing that struck me, and I think that would be, is what why your um, novel is so important too, is that historians even say it is important for us to understand the lives of ordinary people. History is not just made by the people in charge. It also is that of the lives of millions of people. And the more we know about that, the better we can understand a certain time. And I read that repeatedly. And that was another push for me. In, in addition to Edward Ball's Slaves in the Family, who mm. finally wrote about it because he said that he may not be responsible for what his ancestors did, but he absolutely is accountable. He has to face that past. And that was a wake-up call for me, too. I love that there was that moment where you decide that, yeah, like, I'm I'm going to do this. I I need to do this. And I think, but even before that, when even when you said that you hadn't told anyone, I don't know why, but I, I was thinking that you still had, like, a core people that you could tell, like, you know, like, either a really close friend or, like, your husband. And so for two years, like, not, like, holding this in, like, my goodness. It brought up all the shame I've always felt of being, being German, mm. you know. It, and I, I assume, I don't really know because now I live in the United States and I'm not, I have some German friends, but I think that may be characteristic of people of my generation that, you know, you live so much in the shadow of what just happened and your family was there. But all we... All I ever knew was that both my father and my uncle had been killed in the war. Actually, there's a nice thing, a result of writing this book that relates to England. Out of the blue, a guy, a magazine editor, wrote to me saying that he had eyewitness testimony, the guy is dead by now, of a man who witnessed my father's plane crash over near Eastbourne. My father was a fighter pilot. And, you know, in 1943, when he was shot down, he knew it was, these were suicide missions. Hitler had decided to put bombs under the bottom of the fighter planes, which meant they could not gain proper altitude. They couldn't read. They were sitting ducks. And coming from France, where they were stationed, to go to Eastbourne and back, was almost impossible. Uh, Almost most of them died. And so he sort of knew that was a suicide mission. But he was hit, his plane was hit, and he was the wingman to the guy in front. And he wrote my mother that he had hoped, he saw him wear off over over land, and he hoped that he would have been able to make a belly landing. And it turned out he almost did. He had almost a perfect belly landing, but there was a ditch and one side of the ditch was higher than the other and that caught his wing and flipped the plane over. And so the guy saw it all. And then when he went there and he checked that the pilot was dead, 
he cut out a bit of the perspex, you know, the little plastic thing on top uh, that they could see through and made rings and brooches out of it for his family. Oh and now they offered me one, but I declined. <laughs> oh, wow. But isn't that amazing? It is. And, and just to hear from them, like, my goodness. Yeah, yeah. So COVID has prevented me from going there because the guy, the editor said he would love to take me around to the site because it was a very tiny village and it was the big event for them that the fighter plane had gone down there. He was he was a teenager at the time and he said he just remembered that, you know, they were all struck by the whole thing. So And how did he find you? How did he know that um that this book. was your father? Oh um, my goodness. The hardcover of the book was published in London before years later I got the paperback was it was published here. And he happened to see that and got in touch with me. And then he asked me, he said, we never knew who the pilot was. So he asked me to write a little piece about my father for their paper. Wow. It's like the power of books and the power of stories, like connecting yes. people through yes. time. How phenomenal. And yes. And I think one of the things that with hindsight, I think is important in say a story like this or like any story is that it creates empathy, even mm-hmm. for people who are entirely different from you, who have nothing, you know, with whom you think you share nothing. And it, I hope that would be my hope too for this book in a way, that it would generate, make us more tolerant and compassionate mm-hmm. to everyone around us and see that there's always more that connects us than divides. We need a message like this today, but we are so, especially in this country, so divided. I think you're right. And I think that it seems more and more of the world today needs that powerful message. Could we ask for another reading, please? Yes, on a, on a more cheerful note, because as I was then writing the book, the main emphasis still was on the horror of the nightmare, really, of Berlin in 1945. My grandfather was a doctor, so he worked in medical cellars. They had no beds. The patients were simply lying on the cement floor. And with each bomb strike, you know, cement dust would rain down on them. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but they had no water. They had no light. And the dead were simply stacked outside. It was just a nightmare scenario. And outside you could hardly breathe because there were fires everywhere and the acrid smoke, you know, kept you really from being able to inhale fully. There were millions of refugees fleeing before the Red Army, pouring into Berlin, having nowhere to go, dying in the streets. I mean, it, it was awful. So that is one big part. But another part, too, is... Writing about my grandfather brought back memories from the past. Mm. And he he was really wonderful grandfather. I mean, he always he always was interested in my education, first and foremost, in a way, but he also knew you needed play, and play was important. And he himself played with almost childish glee, you know, the games we played. Yeah. And one of them was uh, flying kites and building kites. And that's what I want, would like to read. In the fall, I loved our building a kite together. Api selected two strips of bare wood, testing them for flexibility. 
He nailed them together into a cross and carefully checked the balance. It had to be exactly right, otherwise the kite wouldn't fly. Next came the delicate task of stretching paper across the surface. We painted big black eyes and red ears on the paper, a dragon's face, since the German word for kite is drachen or dragon. I had to be careful not to pierce the stretched paper at any spot. It was my job also to make the dragon's tail by folding and tying pieces of newspaper to a string like a series of bow ties. When it was done, we admired our handiwork and took it upstairs to show to Nusi. Nusi is my grandmother. She was Hungarian, and that's what we called her. I remember one blustery fall afternoon when we were out in the meadows in front of the house with our newest creation. Appy was running as fast as he could to get the kite started. Then, for a moment, he looked up as the patient waved to him from the street. Before he could shout a hello, I saw him disappear. I ran to the spot where I had last seen him. Api had fallen into one of the many drainage ditches that dissected the meadow. He sat up in the muddy ditch and I saw him bent over with laughter. He still held on to the string and the wind had taken the kite high up into the sky. I tried to hold the string, but the pull was too strong. So wet as he was, Api anchored our kite deep in the soil of the meadow, and we watched it bouncing and surging high above us in the air. It looked so small and yet so strong. I could not believe that we had created it ourselves. How beautiful. You know, one thing I think is so powerful about it is it seems to, it looks at, so you, you found out that he had been a member of the Nazi party and it's that, and it's you like kind of, you know, grappling with that and the questions that it makes you, you know, question, it forces you to look at the past and also your feelings of like shame and guilt and, and all those things. And it forces you to, to kind of address things that maybe you hadn't addressed before, but then also you still have this man who loved you so, so very much. And it's balancing, I think, like the writing and also that memory of that, of, of that love and that, that family and that commitment to you and being there when, when you needed, yeah. you needed him. And yeah. I guess I'm curious about what that writing is, is like, like, how do you balance that or do you balance that? Yeah, I mean, the book has 62 short chapters, so it bounces back and forth between those. But the amazing thing, I'm sure as any writer would know, in the process of writing, memories come up that I had not thought of for 50 years. As I was trying to describe my grandfather's death, he died in 1955. I was only with him for a few years. I wanted to express what I felt, and at first only the kind of stereotypical thoughts of grief and loss and so came to me. But then suddenly out of the blue, I remembered the gloves lying at the bottom of the stairs. He had been out uh, uh, serving an old folks home, which he always did for free, and came back from that, obviously knowing he was a doctor, knowing that he was really in bad shape, that probably he knew that he was dying. And so he rushed to his bedroom and just discarded his gloves at the bottom of the stairs and the fingers from the hand were still bent you know they were rigid and dead and they lay there for days because you know nobody took them away 
And I remember that that sort of haunted me for years to come in my nightmares or thoughts about my grandfather's death. I saw, saw those gloves, but I had totally forgotten about that. And it was the process of writing that brought these memories back and also good memories of my life with him. So, yes, it brought me closer to him. Also, having seen him in Berlin, where he himself was close to despair and to complete breakdown and collapse. I mean, although he was a deeply religious man, he kept thinking about killing himself. And that was typical of everyone. You know, after the war, when they turned the gas lines back on in Berlin, they immediately had to turn them back off because people used it to kill themselves. Wow. And he would say that more patients came to him asking for ways to commit suicide than for being helped or healed. It was just, and he keeps talking about colleagues of his who killed themselves because there was so little they could do for their patients. And they themselves, you know, were sick and hungry and cold and often homeless. Wow. So. I don't think we hear enough about that. Like, I don't think we, um, we don't hear about it. We don't talk about it. Just, I just feel like, oh my goodness. Like, do like repercussions and, re and reparations of, of war and in some, like, my gosh, I just feel like there, there's so much that we, I want to say pretend how like there's a date for everything. And when they say, well, this, you know, this was from this date to this date and this ended on this date. And, and we seldom talk about the, the day after. That's a and, very good time. Wow. It's just, it's just making me like just just think and imagine, and I actually feel like I could like I could just cry just, and I can't even imagine like right like reading through his diaries and know and and you have such access to um to things that you don't you know how there's ways that sometimes our family seems so strong or so you know um they know the answers to everything especially grandparents um yes. they know the answers things are all worked out and. And you don't necessarily think about um, what's going on in their head outside of, you know, you and, and, and how much they love being around, you know, and those yes. things. And, and to, to imagine someone, you know, hurting and suffering and, um, and questioning and feeling like all these different things. And meanwhile, they're, they're doing all these other things because they're saying, well, I'm needed here. And so yes. I don't, you know, get to do all those other things or feel all those other things. But having access to this diary and in a form of letters to you and your mother. Mm -hmm. I think that's uh, that's so perceptive of you because in some ways I also came closer to him because mm -hmm. I saw him, you know, as a very who I thought was the pillar of strength and support and so on. I saw him now in his weakest moments and how he dealt with with those, and it was in part the diary that pulled him through. You know, that became a necessity for him to tell us every day what he was experiencing. And it was his faith. He he was very a uh, deeply religious person. That those two things, I think, and the hope maybe of a reunion, but that was very iffy at at that time. Yeah. Before we go, can I ask you for one final reading, please? Well, I one thing I can I just quickly mention one thing. Of course, in yeah. all these the horrors and so on, there were so many instances where human beings, people, just ordinary people, bridged the abyss that had been created by the horrendous war 
by violence, by death, and, and showed sympathy to each other. And one was actually in England when Cannock Chase, it's a military cemetery near Birmingham, was mm -hmm. opened, and my father is buried there. So I went to see it. And there were 5,000 graves there from both wars. And I thought, I will never find my father's grave in this. But then I saw an old attendant to walk there, and I asked him, would he by any chance know? And believe it or not, his eyes lit up as if I had talked about a friend or something. He said, of course, Captain Hefler. And he took me to his grave, and I saw it there, and then we stood together, and we talked a little. And he he was really glad I had come, and that we could share this quiet moment together. And yet, he was of an age that he probably served in the war. Mm. And this was in the 60s. The war wasn't that far away. We had been enemies very recently. And he was proud of, he said something like, these people had such a hard time, they deserve this quiet resting place. Oh. And I broke out into tears, not so much about the gravesite of a father I had never known, but for the kindness and compassion of this old man. So there are a lot of examples of this in my book as well. Do you want me to read this or are we out of yes, time? Yes, please. If you don't mind, that would be lovely. No, that is fine. It, in a way, it, it's hard to put that together because this thoughts just wouldn't let me go about German guilt and especially my grandfather's responsibility. And in the end, I decided I, I found lots of reasons why he might have joined the party on May 1st, 1933, early. Lots of people like him, veterans of World War I and conservatives and intellectuals or professional people joined them. In fact, so many that Hitler closed the party for a year or two after that because he did not want these kind of people in his party. Oh, wow. Uh, which is uh, amazing. And once he was in, he couldn't get out, right? And, you know, doctors were particularly, so, so he fit the profile of people who joined at that time. And there were lots of other reasons. But there still is a guilt there. There is a political responsibility. And I sort of went a bit with Hannah Arendt in, on Arendt with, in this, who said that only people can, the degree of that guilt, people can only decide individually. You know, wow. what small acts of cowardice or courage have, have they committed in those years? You know, I thought of what would I have done if I, there had been a, demonst a Nazi demonstration. You were absolutely obligated to give the Hitler salute if you passed by. Would I have done that or would I have the courage to just pass mm -hmm. by and expose myself to the Secret Service who, you know, might have taken you away? And, you know, even listening to the BBC could bring a death sentence. Wow. So, you know, you don't know what you would have done. And I mm -hmm. think a, a term that was very prevalent at the after the war was a term called inner emigration. Because that's what people said they did. And I think that's what my grandfather did. They kept their head down. They looked after their family. They did their job. And they just shut their eyes and ears to everything else. But there clearly is a responsibility and the guilt in that too. So I'm just going to read little bits of the end. Uh, okay. I start with a poem, actually, or a stanza of a poem by Bertolt Brecht the three-penny opera, 
the writer of the Three Penny Opera. He says, what times are these where a conversation about trees is almost a crime because it includes a silence about so many misdeeds? A silence that is almost a crime is a chilling specter that lays its finger on many, if not all of us, and makes innocence impossible. I'm reminded of Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from Birmingham jail, in which he condemned not only the actions of the bad people, but the terrible silence of the good. In the end, when I'm left with many explanations, but no complete answers, as told my grandfather's guilt, Is it too glib and simple-minded to conclude that compassion and love should not be selective and cannot be separated from any accounting of Api's story and of history? If we accept the notion that we are all responsible for the acts of our government, that we are all politically guilty, we need to become more humane toward all around us and learn to forgive others as well as ourselves. This does not release even my post-war generation from being accountable for what was done during the Third Reich and living with that history. But if love and compassion can help us understand, though not excuse, what happened to people like my grandfather, then perhaps they can help us see and accept our common humanity and appreciate how it binds us together across nationality, race and gender. Amid the crimes of the Nazi regime and the horrors of two world wars and their millions of dead remains the question whether this is wisdom or evasion. Does it show a Panglossian resignation and denial of responsibility or a profound understanding of life through humanity and compassion? I still cannot find any solid ground on which to stand in this wide field. Oh, wow. How beautiful. Um, I, you know, I wonder, I just hope in a way that that would be a reader's takeaway, how we are connected, that you can even, and I have readers or people who, you know, put Amazon reviews and say that they never thought that they would have sympathy with a Nazi. Uh, but, you know, reading this, they did to a certain degree. So I think it's because you give us a sense of understanding and, and with that compassion and also showing us very human sides of people. And so without that, it's it's hard to, um, if, I think without you d doing the work that you've done, uh, we wouldn't be able to see it and to feel it. But I think you've done such a beautiful job of weaving together like your stories and your memories with showing us what your grandfather might've been thinking or experiencing and also his his diaries as they were. And so all of those bridges bringing them together are, I think, what makes it a very human story that does connect people. Well, thank you for saying it. It means a lot coming from the author of Remembered, <laughs> because in a way, one could say the same thing about your novel, couldn't one? I would hope so, because my aims with it were and are for people to to realize that everyone has a story and we don't know it. I think we we make a lot of assumptions And um, and sometimes we don't even give people the benefit of that. And so, um, yeah, so yeah, you're, you're right, there are. <laughs> and also, I think the implicit urge so that we really need to confront our past. That, Definitely. You know, James Baldwin, well, how did, we are our history, he said, but he, there's something before it. I, do you know that quote? 
I, I can't think book. it off the oh, top of my we head. We carry our history with us. We are our history. And so it, it do, is a powerful thing. We do need to know our history and know, know the truth, not some nostalgic myth. I think you're right. And so thank you so much for, for giving us Oppie's Berlin Diaries and for sharing, not just keeping them and hiding them away, but for sharing them with us. Can you tell us where can we buy the book? Is there a bookstore or an organization that you would prefer that readers go to for the book? I love bookshop.org because it supports individual bookstores across the country. But it's also available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble, uh, really a lot of places online. It's also available there and it's available as an audiobook as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much for, for sharing with us, for joining us today, for the readings and for talking and sharing your insights. I really appreciate you stopping by Bookable Space Audio Literary Salon. It's a beautiful space you have created and a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much.